0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's Jurisprudence Editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case, and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus Show page on Apple Podcasts Or visit Slate.com slash Amicus Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much.
0: I've got to say, people just seem lost. Where's my community? I have no backup. It just seems that so many people are struggling with a lack of a social safety net and
2: finding safety in community.
0: That's Eileen, a Death, Sex, and Money listener and therapist, telling us what she's been noticing lately at work. As you may know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And while mental health is something we talk about all the time on the show, we wanted to mark this month at Death, Sex, and Money by doing something a little different. We are partnering with our colleagues at WNYC and public radio stations across the country on a series of live national call-ins about mental health. We're calling the series Hold On. Get it? It's a double meaning of how being in crisis or a mental health downturn can feel like you're just holding on. And also, it's a call-in show, so hold on the phone. This is the first of six hours we'll be sharing with you this month. And we're beginning at the place where most of us get stuck, how to start therapy. We asked you what's worked to find help and also asked mental health professionals to call in and talk about what they're seeing in their sessions We heard about loneliness, anxiety, and the frustrations and successes of telehealth. We're going to drop the second episode, which was all about teenagers and mental health, this coming Saturday. And the plan is for you to get two episodes per week for the next three weeks. If you want to participate live, the next two call-ins are on Thursdays 8 to 10 Eastern Time. So that's May 11th and May 18th. We're on 100 public radio stations, but if we're not being broadcast where you live, you can stream it live on WNYC's website, which is linked in our show notes. And we want to know what you think about this series and to hear any stories from your own life that it stirs up. You can always be in touch by emailing us at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. Here's the episode. This is Hold On, a national live call-in special about our mental health from WNYC and the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. It does not have to be this way. I'm Anna Sale, and those are not my words. They're from a recent White House statement on the collective mental health crisis Americans are experiencing. Some of the statistics it mentions. Two in five adults report anxiety and depression— Two in five teenagers describe experiencing persistent sadness or hopelessness exacerbated by social media, bullying, and gun violence. Drug overdose deaths are also near record highs. And suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people. All of this is happening at a time during an epidemic of loneliness. Just this week, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a report on what he called a loneliness epidemic, saying about half of American adults are experiencing loneliness and isolation, which has major consequences for both our physical and mental health. So many of us are suffering in isolation. Others of us are getting mental health care but aren't sure it's the right kind of care. And of course, there are those of us suffering from serious mental illness without coordinated, continuous care and an adequate safety net. We feel and see this across America. In cities, like on the New York City subway, where a man experiencing mental distress was choked to death by another passenger just this week. We see it in small towns and communities where finding help or getting off a wait list can feel impossible. There's a lot we need to address over our series of specials about mental health this month. We are on public radio stations across the country to do it in the north and south in big cities and rural places. And we're also streaming wherever you are. And here's our hope for these live call-in conversations. We want to gather together and tell our stories, commiserate, swap strategies that have worked, and lift up the questions that are still nagging at you. So we can listen together and really hear how this is not something that only you or your family is struggling with. There may not be simple fixes, but there is company to be found to help us all hold on, and maybe even with a firmer grasp than when you started listening this evening. To start this conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Callie Cyrus, a practicing community psychiatrist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine, and you may also recognize her from couples therapy if you, like me, watch that show on Showtime. Welcome, Dr. Callie. Thank you for being with us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: You are going to take our calls with me this hour. Later, we're going to share advice about finding the right kind of care at the right time. We want to hear from all of you if you've had that experience. But to start, we want to hear from the mental health professionals out there listening to hear your sense of what you're noticing about how we're doing right now. Be our reporters. If you're a therapist, a counselor, a psychiatrist, we hear the stats, we hear these big reports on our collective mental health, but we want to hear your sense from what you see on your days at work, what keeps coming up again and again, what's new. On Debt, Sex, and Money, the podcast I host, we asked our listeners this question, and here's some of what we heard from mental health professionals. The biggest theme that I see amongst many different clients is the adverse impacts of extreme social isolation.
3: People are just kind of wanting to get back to what they had before the
2: pandemic. I've seen a huge growth in the amount of people seeking out therapy with a spiritual component, somatic work. Ancestral work, intuitive work. I believe that people are cracked wide open.
4: Couples were seeing me to
5: just fight in my office and One of them would storm out and say, life's too short, I'm done. Um, I had many men that were in their 40s, like white men, two of which I had to drive to the ER because
4: they were suicidal.
0: What do I do if I move far away from my family? Or I don't know who to put down on an emergency contact form. I hear these things all the time. Just grown adults searching. Dr. Callie. What are some of the patterns you're seeing from your clients? How would you describe this moment?
3: I've been calling it a fever pitch, actually. Um, mm. And maybe that's just a kind of Debbie Downer in me. But um, I don't, it just feels like it's getting worse. And at some point, what's the system going to do? There has to be some sort of breaking point. Um, and while they're, you know, they're moments of improvement, but um, it's just the, what people are coming with is really kind of hits your soul in a way that, you
0: you feel powerless. You feel hopeless. Huh. And when you say that it's getting worse, what's the it in your office?
3: Yeah, a lot of the themes that the callers mentioned. I like to group things in terms of like love, health, and work. And it feels like all three of those things, or usually one or two of them at one time, aren't going well. Uh, and so whether it's someone who's isolated since the pandemic, who's now afraid to leave the house. That's one thing that's worse and even though things have opened up and the ramifications of seeing someone in a dark room every week and you might be the only person who they actually have another conversation with is a mm-hmm. thing uh you know there's also the aspect of feeling like there's no point and being in a different relationship because everyone's so traumatized right now and so stressed out so this is the best I can get or there's no point in even trying to go out and make friends uh, and then there's also the I don't have anything else to necessarily do or how do I deal with this moment right now at the end of the day and I come home and I drink or I smoke and that is the way that I'm getting through. So there's a there's a mix of from the way I hear the, everything that each caller kind of said that shows up in everybody. And it's tough as a therapist because you're trying to address all of it. Just like Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and are you hearing these themes from people who've been longtime clients of yours and and you're seeing in real time the stress compound and compound? Or is this also how people are walking in the door that they are in more distress as a first time patient than you've seen before in your practice?
3: Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So I have folks who come to me in crisis and those are obviously the toughest and some of those haven't seen a therapist or haven't been on meds before and you are just trying to do damage control. Um, and sometimes that damage control is a traumatic thing happened. Like this is an email that, you know, you can get a, someone reaching out, looking for a psychiatrist saying something happened. I have a crisis. I need to be in contact or be connected ASAP. You don't know what they're writing about on the other side of it. And then you end up being in contact with them and you're literally just hitting the ground running. You don't know, you know, what to do with their issue or, or how to sort of just calm down their trauma that they they're showing up with right now. And then with my regular patients, you know that that does give me a little bit more hope. I'll say they will have crises like we all do, but it kind of ebbs and flows where there are moments of improvement. And even if one crisis gets solved, then there's a next one that comes up. Like it's just maybe that's the tenor of of what I feel is that there's just no rest, there's no break. Everyone mm. has one hurdle after another, and it might be love one day, health the other day,
0: work the other day, and it's just like when do you get some relief? Oh, so that trick of stabilizing when if you stabilize one thing, something else is exploding is a, is a real difficulty right now. I want to bring Francesca into this conversation. You are a professional, a mental health professional in Paloma, California. What would you say? What are you noticing in your work right now about our mental health crisis?
6: Hi, thank you. Um, all of my patients are gender nonconforming. So what I've seen is a spike in anxiety where people who are dealing just fine with you know the social anxiety and the the difference involved in in not being a typical gender are suddenly asking me should i get surgery should i get procedures that i was not even considering gender affirming care now because that right may go away
0: and what do you say as a professional in that question if you are do you feel like accelerating care due to a political moment is something that you think about with your clients And that is the the tough part
6: because folks are not choosing care because they've come to a, a decision after determining what their best option is. They are politicized. They're scared. They feel pressure. And so the question becomes, can you cope with the concept that your ability to get this care might be taken away, which is a greater anxiety producer for you? The idea of submitting to a procedure that you may not be ready for or the idea of never having that
0: option and that's how they're feeling. Hmm. Can you cope with two choices that are both distressing? Uh, thank you for your call Francesca. Destiny in Detroit what are you noticing at work as a mental health professional?
4: I'm noticing uh, especially as a person who completes the um, the assessments when people are first entering care They are wanting the services for themselves as adults or services for their children, and they want to have a human component again. Um, Our clients are tired of sitting at home. They want to come in and meet with someone face-to-face. They want the the body heat, the body language, and unfortunately, we don't have enough clinicians to fill that space. So while we have clients who are ready to come back in, we don't have clinicians who are yet and a um, professional component
0: ready to be back in the office. Huh.
7: So um, the I'm, I'm not of the seeing remote the shift work yet that, that
0: we need. People are wanting Absolutely. to come in and you so don't May have 11th. the ability and the capacity to, to welcome them in. Um, thank you, Destiny, for your call. Is that something, Dr. Kelly, that you're navigating with your clients? Uh, it's It's interesting. I
3: don't know that my clients are requesting to come in. They all started working with me virtually. I will say on my end, There are some clients who I wish I was in an office seeing them. They may not necessarily ask me, but they're the clients who are definitely the ones who might go a week without seeing someone else. Uh, And I just want to reach across the screen and say, why don't you meet me at the track across the street and we can go walking? Uh
0: (laughs) Um, I want to bring in James in Nagatok, Connecticut. James, what are you noticing from what your clients are talking to you about?
8: So uh, I'm a hypnotherapist here in Connecticut, and I've been here for 13 years, uh, and I do both online and in person. And what I've noticed, um, the biggest age group, like 15 to 25, the amount of anxiety that these kids have about everything from exams to just regular everyday life and how to be able to communicate with other people and how nonverbal they are um, has just been amazing to me. And it wasn't like that when I first opened my practice. But the amount of adults since the pandemic that I've had with isolation, anxiety, and um, all of those things, they, that has also increased. Um, mm. I think, though, that there is some good news when you let somebody walk away with some tools, um, that cognitive tools that they can use on their own to help them get through some some of this anxiety as well and teach them that it's not such a hopeless thing that we do control our minds at some level. And we can do that through through a lot of different means of going inward.
0: Well, I, you said you're a hypnotherapist. So I'm going to ask you just to give us an example. If I am feeling totally overwhelmed with anxiety and say I'm a 16-year-old who doesn't have a lot of language to express what I'm feeling and, and not a lot of experience to know how to get through it, um, what is the thing that you say about the way that you can have a little bit of control over those feelings of overwhelm?
8: Well, I explained to them about the mind's subconscious versus conscious and how we can reprogram our subconscious mind through things like positive affirmations, listening to um, direct suggestion type recordings through sleep um, and also some uh, actual both physical and breathing exercises that they can do diaphragmatic breathing mm-hmm. uh, for example to bring them back into the moment and explaining that anxiety is about future thinking depression is often about past thinking but the only place that we can get that moment of peace usually is by remaining in the moment now we know we can't remain in the moment all the time but teaching them ways to reel themselves back in by just simply noticing the sounds around them or the sights around them or what they feel in that particular moment.
3: Dr.
0: Callie, what do you want to add?
3: Yeah. The approach that James is talking about is, is extremely helpful, but more cognitive thinking about what your, what the inputs are and how they need to be altered in terms of then decreasing the output or changing the output, which is decreasing anxiety. But I guess what I was going to go back to and say is there are some adults who are showing up with things that maybe you would expect kids would. A lot of people don't know how to talk about feelings, especially people of color, especially, you know, folks who are over the age of 30. Uh, And so I'm just seeing so many people with a range. And it's I'm having to start way below and from the beginning, like far less advanced than talking about in a cognitive sense more like showing a feelings wheel having to have folks identify is that a thing that you're actually feeling how long have you felt it do you notice when it comes up um, mm-hmm. a lot of folks saying you know I don't know what's going on but you know I keep getting it, it feels like I'm going to have a heart attack or I get so nauseous and not necessarily even connecting it with how they feel so there's just it's it's really great that so many people are coming to get care right now, uh, and it is striking which age groups uh, you know, are presenting in certain ways, but it, it's across the board. And I think that's important to recognize. It's not just one group presenting one way. There's a lot of this just mixed through everybody.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Kelly, you say a feelings wheel. I'm imagining it's this wheel of like... Is sadness something you're feeling now? Is anger something you're feeling now? Is that is it as simple as giving people permission to say, I am sad?
3: Sometimes that's it. People will say, oh, it's it feels weird. I feel down. I feel depressed. And you don't. That means different things for every person. Also, I will say, there are a lot of feelings that you just never actually knew were feelings or words. We tend to use the same three. Sad, angry, mad, you know, stuff but if you look at these wheels are amazing. I, you should just get everyone to do a little image search of this, but, but there's, there's so many, um, within the sad category or within the happy category. And it's really helping people put words to it because that's the first step. Like what James is talking about is that if you can't identify or name the thing, how are you going to move forward by addressing it or doing something with it?
0: Hmm. Lauren, in Baltimore, Maryland, what are you noticing in your practice about this moment? What are people struggling with?
5: Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, I am director of uh, the Intercultural Counseling Connection. We provide therapy for survivors of torture and trauma from many different mm-hmm. countries through a, a network of pro bono therapists. And we're going to focus on the issue of isolation. that has been so salient um, the people we work with are isolated not only because of the extreme nature of the kinds of experiences they've been through, but also often culturally and also because they're new to the setting. Many have just arrived here in the last few months. Um, and The broadening of virtual therapy services throughout the pandemic has certainly enabled not only our clients, but of course people everywhere to access uh, more so than well, it was a necessary uh, measure. Now that it's possible to return to in-person individual therapy, that's all fine, but we have consistently seen how really essential group work is
6: mm. to helping
5: people reestablish a sense of connection and to help them realize that they're not alone in what they're experiencing, to get the benefit of the group support others can offer. Um, huh. And uh, with that, um, we've also seen... That just helping people, for example, get outside, spend time in the sunshine, engage in activities like gardening, um, and going back to the previous, uh, the previous callers speaking about being mindful and aware of the, what's going on in a sensory way in the moment. We've been bringing more of that into our work with people in our garden spaces, mindfulness huh. within nature.
0: Blaine, so I wonder... uh, these are the
5: kinds of things that we find are helpful.
0: Yeah. And when you say group therapy being helpful, I've never really thought of that as a way of like creating micro communities and community building. Is that something that you feel like you're doing when you say, rather than just come and have this one on one session, how about join in with a few other people and, and, and just see the way that you are mirrored back by other people?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, the individuals we work with, many of them have been through really um terrible forms of persecution, sexual and gender-based violence, and the like. Um, And to be in a group, we're not not talking about these trauma experiences in the group, per se, but uh, using different expressive mindfulness approaches to dealing with practical issues, like how to decrease anxiety, how to um, use different kinds of techniques in the moment where you feel yourself being affected by intrusive memories, um, and to do things together, to engage in artistic or expressive modalities, to go out in the garden. We, we work with people from about 27 different countries, and we yeah. have interpreters so that people are able to connect across cultures, you know, uh, across genders, um, and it is Some of the participants have been involved with groups over years as they've moved on in their journeys, and they are much further along in their experience here in the U.S., they're more stable. They welcome the newcomers. We had someone come into our program just a few weeks ago, and she was told by one of our old-timers, you will be safe here. Welcome. Things are going to get better now. And that was just amazing.
0: Thank you for your work and for this work of, of building relationships that you're doing. You know, Dr. Callie, it's, it's reminding me that one of the titles you use is community psychiatrist, um, and you have a background in public health along with a private practice. And I just wonder how you think about that, about what your, how much of your work ought to be helping people establish connections with others and build relationships
3: that's the job, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day, you know, there, there are a lot of studies that, that look at what makes psychotherapy effective. And so many of the studies come down to the relationship you have with the therapist and what the bond is. And that is, I think that's a microcosm of of what, of what we all need. Again, back to this loneliness, we just need to connect to someone to know that someone hears us and to be able to share it, which is why. um, So for me, a community psychiatrist that's like in a clinic it's kind of a hustling bustling people around saying hi there's laughter there's other things happening um I used to go to people's homes it's a very different model you know I'm wearing my sneakers um as opposed to the psychotherapy frame um which is no in an office you know <laughs> there um I still wear sneakers don't tell anyone that but uh Um, but you know, you have the noise machine on and all of this, and, um, it's a lot more stuffy. I think it's probably what we imagine when we see things on TV, but that's been upended with, Mm -hmm. with virtual therapy. You know, I, I have, I'm in the form of psychoanalysis, which is basically a therapy like old school Freudian where you lay on the couch and, Mm -hmm. and talk off the top of your head for three to five days a week. And this is very, like very strict kind of frame. My analyst is now on zoom Looking at text messages that I sent her screenshots of—that is not something that would have ever happened before. Huh. And I think that it's bringing folks closer together. To a, um, it's—I think it's forcing us to be more flexible with how we meet clients where they are, which is amazing uh, from the perspective that I see it. Um, and group is one of those things. I—I don't, I don't know if we'll go back to group, but just in case folks are look, it's a really. It's more affordable. So if you're trying to get in with a therapist and you can't find one, group is one really good thing to look for because you wouldn't necessarily have to pay as much. I know some folks are like, well, I don't want to put my business in the group. I don't know those people. I understand that, but why don't you just try it? You're not forced to tell all of your business. The other thing is that you can benefit from other people sharing their stories. And so you have four other people or five other people. You don't necessarily have to share everything about yourself. You can learn from them. Um, They're also A lot of different types of groups out there that you would probably be able to get in um, and there'd be more availability and not just therapy groups but like folks have been mentioning there are creative arts therapists there are you you know more somatic groups there's so many different options out there rather than kind of the way we expect it and I think that's something that's really great that's happened
0: yeah um I want to bring in Maria in Philadelphia, because you just mentioned group therapy as being a way to also have it be a little bit more affordable if you're paying out of pocket. Maria, it sounds like money is coming up with your clients.
4: Hi. Yeah. Um, so I'm, ai guess, a community psychiatrist. I practice in a suburb of Philadelphia, and I mostly serve a middle to lower socioeconomic status population and I can't even begin to describe the financial challenges that patients sort of bring up as their primary concern. So uh, there's a tremendous lack of affordable housing in the community where I practice as well as nationwide. And it's just really hard to sort of try to encourage uh, mental health and mental wellness when people are spending time on friends and family's couches. They don't even have a stable place to live or uh, they don't have access to healthy or affordable food. And that's been sort of, that's become even more prominent after the uh, declaration that the COVID-19 emergency has come to an end and uh, people lost critical access to funds that they were using to pay for medications and food. And it's just so overwhelming to try and sort of help people feel good while they're struggling to fight for their most basic needs
0: yeah i mean what do you find yourself saying to clients who are saying i don't have the money it takes to live in this community housing is too expensive like how how do you talk about that in a way that's going to hopefully make them feel a little relief by the end of a session if you don't have money to give them
4: i know i and i wish i could um so I try to do as much as I physically can. I oftentimes will surf Craigslist and apartment websites as do many of the therapists that I work with to help people find affordable housing. We have gotten really good at becoming aware of the community resources available so we'll direct people to food banks. So a lot of I guess what I generally end up doing when I meet with patients who have some of those concerns, I kind of take my psychiatrist hat off and I put on a sort of a community resource manager hat on because truthfully, like I cannot do my job as a psychiatrist if my patients are hungry, if my patients are cold, if they do not have access to utilities. So I do essentially what they need me to do in in my appointments with them.
0: Hmm. Maria, thank you for your call. Dr. Callie, I love that distinction that Maria made. I have to take off my psychiatrist hat and put on my community resource manager hat. Um, Is that something you were, uh, trained to do in your education? No, <laughs> no. Is that you something know, you never, find yourself doing with your clients?
3: uh Yes, I think that's part of the job. And I, I just want to say thanks to Maria. But that's the thing is that, so especially if you're thinking about psychiatrists, we're trained to prescribe meds. We're not necessarily trained to do therapy or to just... Take our psychiatrist hat off and do what we need to do for the basics for our clients. And depending on who you work with and in what setting you work in, you have to if you want your clients to get better. And that takes time. It's a lot of energy, and you feel like you can't fix anything. It's it's it's. But you have to just keep going because they keep going. You have to find some way to be able to help folks. Um, but there are a lot of different hats that you have to you have to wear other than psychiatrists. Sometimes you have to wear uh, parent or advocate call people's families hmm. and try to touch base in that way. Sometimes I am, you know, the Karen on the phone, who's calling the government office, who's calling the doctor's office, who's calling to
0: say, my client needs services with you. Um, the Karen on so- the phone, meaning you're the, the the person who's the strong advocate who feels entitled to good service. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs>
3: Saying my client needs this. They can't get out of bed. They desperately need their Adderall, you know, things like this. And so it's, it's, and there's a different flavor of it. So Maria is talking about the community that she's working with, which is, um, you know, in terms of what insurance they might take, how they're able to pay. There's again, a flavor of that happening in the kind of community that might be more middle-class or upper middle-class. Obviously not as severe, but they're dealing with their own financial issues and you can't, really help them if those are the things that are always going to be there, which I was going to say comes back to something that Francesca one of the callers was saying, which is how do you just cope with things being the way that they are? It's like if this is it, what can we do to get you through it?
0: That's what we're going to talk about after the break. We want to hear from all of you, whether you're a mental health professional or not, about where you have found care that has been helpful when there are so many big things that feel like you're not in charge of it. If you're listening to this in your podcast feed, I have a question for you. For our May 18th Hold On Live show, we're going to be talking to organizational psychologist Melissa Doman about how to talk about your mental health at work. And we want to know your experiences. Have you ever had to disclose a diagnosis to your boss or in a job interview? Are you a manager wondering how much to talk to employees about their feelings? What's the line between being a compassionate leader and, um, this is so not my job we want to hear from you about how you've talked about your mental health at work, what boundaries you've drawn, how you've talked to your coworkers about their mental health, and what's helped you make work a more human place. You can record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney@wnyc.org. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks— but they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you.
2: Hi. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
0: I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex and Money have made our move to Slate. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit Slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen,
9: tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen. And her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name.
8: The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to
9: The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.
0: I'm Anna Sale, and this is Hold On, a national call-in about mental health. I host the podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC, and you're hearing me on your public radio station. And we are talking now about how you have found the right kind of mental health support once you realized you needed help. I am the type of person who is telling everyone that they should be in therapy. Finding
4: a new therapist especially after having a fabulous therapist sucks. There's just not that many people in the world that you're going to feel like you can trust and that you like talking to and that you feel are helpful and, and good for you to talk to. I had a therapist Who had me hold two crystals in my hand and open and close my arms really widely. And at the end of that, I wasn't supposed to be mad at my father anymore. If you have
0: to force the conversation or if what they are saying to you just doesn't land right, then find a new one.
1: You'll know if the person you're speaking to understands and respects you.
2: Unfortunately, it's a lot like dating.
0: Those are listeners of the podcast I host, Death, Sex, and Money, describing the journey it can be to find the right kind of professional help for your mental health. We are taking your calls right now about what's been helpful for you. Tell your fellow listeners who maybe have never sought professional help before, what do you wish you'd known at the start about finding the right kind of care for yourself? I'm joined this hour by Dr. Callie Cyrus, a practicing psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. Hi, Dr. Callie. I want to ask you first... When do you know that it's time to try to get some help from a mental health professional?
3: You know when it's time to get help when the typical strategies that you're using are not helping and you feel it every day. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to necessarily throw around diagnoses, but the way I think about it is if you whatever's going on, You're not able to get sleep. You're not eating as much. You're not ever able to cope and do the things that you need to do most days of the week for weeks at a time. It's time to do something different. Um, And whether that's meds, whether it's talking to someone, the first step is just connecting with anyone who can listen to you talk through it and help you decide next steps. So that's the thing for me is when you know you're just back to that stability thing, (laughs) hurdle after hurdle and not having a chance to get up and you don't feel like you can get up. And you want to
0: give up. It's time to seek some help. And say you don't know anybody who's in therapy as a close friend or family member. Where's that next step? What do you do next about where do I go?
3: That's a good question.
0: I will say I've had
3: some folks who don't have any family members or know anyone who's been in therapy. Reach out to me. Just know that they needed someone. So I'm just going to go ahead and start with the search engine. Mm -hmm. type in what is therapy type in, you know, how much does it cost? How does it work? What if you've never been in therapy? There's so many resources out there on the internet. I think maybe the thing you're asking is just about courage and Mm -hmm. about the fear of reaching out and participating in the process that may be taboo, that may be for folks who are weak, that may be a waste of money. Um, And I think that why not just try it at the end of the day?
0: Sarah in Baltimore, also has a tip. Sarah, you're live on the show. What have you learned about the best way to get care for yourself?
7: Well, it's been a long journey. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been through a number of therapists and um, wasn't working. Kept on getting the diagnosis of depression, depression, depression. Kept on telling my story a thousand times. Knew every time I told my story, I kept on feeling worse. And um, I hit a really bad point where I got laid off and also injured simultaneously uh, and, uh, I guess I was middle-aged at that point and, um, really crashed. And I had always known that I had, had difficulties just like the doctor was just saying, you know, can't get it together. And yet I should be able to get it together. I'm not a, you know, I'm no dummy. I can figure things out. And so I ended up excelling myself, putting myself on an Excel sheet and hmm. writing down when things that wouldn't, shouldn't bother me would bother me i would write those things down with as much detail as i could and i made another excel sheet about things that worked for me and that was really detailed and i then looked at the different types of therapy that there were and uh... went on psychology today and you can see all the different types of therapy and some are Uh not asset-based some focused on the whole and some focused on the donut. and i know when you focus on my negatives we're not going anywhere hmm. uh, because that's part of the problem. So um, I was real specific about what I was looking for in a therapist. And I finally had the nerve, two things happened. I had a friend, fortunately, who was going through a PsyD program. And I told her about my list of symptoms that I had kind of narrowed down, which were kind of oddball. And she said, has anybody ever said to you, PTSD, Now I had been in therapy for a total of, God, from the time I was 14 through the age of 30 off and on, mostly on. And I said, no, what is it? And she, you know, what are the, what are the, uh, distinctive characteristics of it? And she wrote them, laid them out and they were exactly, exactly spot on. Mm. And, uh, from there I had always known that I had suffered the big three you know, in terms of uh, childhood assault, um, you know, physical, sexual, emotional, and um, had, had suffered them rather well, but I could always move on. I could always put on a good face, and uh, it led me to seek out help in my community. Um, it took me looking at the pamphlets a couple of times, you know, uh-huh. before I felt safe enough to make the call. And then I made the call, and it was a great woman who connected people um, with therapists that were particular for them that were trauma-informed, and that is really, really key. If you have experienced trauma in the strict sense, that is fear for your life or that of someone near you or close to you, um, or fear for your bodily integrity, um, which is also another definition of trauma, it's really, really important that you are are seen by someone who's been trained to deal mm. with this. And she hooked me up with someone who was a perfect match for me.
0: Oh, and I do not make it easy for her. You know, you're describing this long journey. And uh, first of all, I've never heard the term excelling myself. And I just love that. I love the idea of creating spreadsheets to help make yourself a little more legible to yourself. Thank you for calling. And And it took that. Then it took the Internet. Then it took running and asking a friend who was in education. Then it took looking at pamphlets. Um, thank you for describing this journey and for sharing all that with us. Dr. Kelly. is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. I, I,
3: I'm really glad you were able to find someone on psychology today because it's really tough. I'm hearing from folks that they have to call up to 15 people before they find someone who is mm. actually available or who actually picks up, picks up the phone. So it's it's unfortunately not that easy these days to look at a directory, put in your zip code, and find someone who's available. I'll say on the other end, in case this is helpful for listeners, always reach out, circle back again. There are times, there are weeks when I let the emails pile up. I can't even think about it. And then there might be a month later where I'm like, oh, let me get back to these people. I have some room on my schedule. I have mm-hmm. folks who will say, can I circle back? And I say, yes, you set a calendar reminder, circle back to me. Um, and so I, I think it's really tough to find someone right now, as Sarah was was saying, and find someone who can diagnose you or is a kind of quality that you feel like you need. Um, but I would say be persistent and just keep in mind, if you feel like you start seeing someone, because sometimes just getting in somewhere is better than not. But if you're leaving feeling more stressed out than when you went, you know it's time to move on. Hmm. Um, so sometimes help is better than no help. Keep in mind when you don't feel like it's working for you. Because that's, at the end of the day, you're the one who's paying for the service.
0: You know, you're describing the persistence that it can take to get the right kind of care. And, and again, we're asking people to do that when they their reserves are already low. That's why they're seeking care. So that I think that can be part of the struggle and the difficulty of this. I want to bring in Samantha in New Haven. You found good care when you were in a crisis?
10: Yeah, correct. Um, thanks for having me on. Sure. Um, yeah, so... My mental health battle has been going on for many years, and, you know, it's hard enough going through the process of, you know, finding the provider and and getting diagnosed, and then the long journey of sometimes finding the correct meds. Um, So I was lucky enough to go through that and and find the right meds, and um, unfortunately, after a while, um, my provider was um, no longer going to be practicing. Mm -hmm. So, for me, procrastination is one of, like, I don't know if you'd call it procrastination, avoidance. Um, Mm -hmm. So, at that point, it became very hard for me to find a new provider. And um, I'm sure, you know, there's other people listening um, who also have bipolar disorder. And people may know that, you know, when you don't take your meds, you know, it can be easy to go into, you know, a, a manic state and, you know, other things can happen. But, um, my point is that I was, I became off my meds for a long, long period of time and and things were not going well for me. And I was able to, um, talk to some people who I was around and they mentioned a place called the apt foundation, which is in new Haven, Connecticut, um, which is a non-for-profit that they mostly focus on, um, substance abuse, but Um, they are prescribers as well. And what the person told me was that I could go in the next day and see someone that day and that they would be able to prescribe for me. Mm -hmm. And, and I did, and um, I was able to see someone they prescribed to me. And I've actually been going there for the last uh, couple of years because for me, you know, the whole thing about, you know, psychology today is a great resource and, and um, you know, that whole thing about like circling back and, and all that for me, that was just, you know, too much. And I needed to know, Hey, if I'm going to really put my effort into doing something that's really hard for me, I, I need a result right away. So I was, mm-hmm. I was very um, fortunate to come in in contact with that program. And uh, so like one of the things I want to say is definitely like look for programs like that in your uh, area, because I don't think I had insurance at that point, And now I have state and, um, and I was uh, able to get care. That's great. Um, right then. Thank
0: so. you for your call, Samantha. It was wonderful to hear that story. And, and, and thank you to all those local providers out there who provide that kind of essential service um, to people when they need help. Um, Donna in Hazlett, Michigan, what's been your experience finding mental health care that's worked for you?
9: Well, at first, it was really difficult. I made hundreds of calls mm. and left messages, and I got two callbacks. <laughs> Two. And one, it just, two. Yeah, two. And one, it was going to be physically impossible for me to do because I couldn't go up steps. Hmm. Um, and the second one I got, um, I explained to her that I had lost uh, most of my memory and that um, I had difficulties with trusting and I wasn't sure I'd be able to get on my car. Um, and she said, "No problem, we'll figure it out." So I thought, "Wow, this is awesome." Hmm. So, so I what went happened? there, and I I was sitting in the parking lot because I could not get out of my car.
10: Yeah.
9: And she came over to my car after I should have been there. She came over to my car, and she goes, "Are you Are you done?" And I went, "Yes." Yeah. And she said, um, "Do you want to come in?" And I said, "I don't think so." <laughs> But uh, she offered to sit in my car. I told her I didn't think that would be good. (laughs) Because, Mm -hmm. like I said, I didn't know who to trust. So she just talked to me um, and just, you know, a little bit about herself and, um, you know, asked me some questions. And after about 10 to 15 minutes, I was able to go in with her and... It had been wonderful because I was in desperate need because no one could understand what it's like because I lost, you know, I lost my memory. So it wasn't just I didn't know people. I didn't know me even.
0: Yeah, Donna, I love um, how much that counselor, she... She really met you exactly where you were uh, in the way that you needed. Thank you so much for your call. Um, Dr. Callie, I want to ask you kind of a big question before we wrap up here, because I think one of the things that can be difficult to gauge is, say you see somebody and it's early in the relationship, a therapy relationship. You kind of leave a session feeling uh, churned up Um when is that a marker of incompatibility and when is that a marker of a therapist who's got your number who's making you look at some things that maybe you ought to but don't want to? How do you how do you know whether that discomfort is part of the treatment that you need to be in?
3: If you're um if that discomfort is not overwhelming and distress, you got to get some more information. Call that ambivalence <laughs> when you feel two different things, you don't know which direction to go, you need some more information. So go back. Uh And it's kind of weird, you know, you're going to pay to go back to somebody you don't know if you like them and they pushed you, you know, but you got to go pay back and do it. I I like to think of this as it's a, you use this space like the real world. So confront them, ask about it. You don't really have the opportunity in any other spaces to practice being confrontational. I had a colleague who used to say, um, you know, when she went to see her therapist, she's like, yeah, I curse at her all the time. And I I (laughs) remember... And it's been a piece of advice for me is use this space, and so go back and talk to the therapist and try to try to see if um, you know ask some questions about whether or not it's actually to help you. Or if you know you don't feel good, I tend to use the rule of threes, which is an average. If two out of three of those times it just doesn't feel good to you, you don't have to go back. Again, it's a service that you're paying for. Um, Although it might be something that's useful for you to learn if you're someone who leaves you know, before you challenge. Uh, but I think it's, it's going to be up to you. If you
0: know it's not good for your health, don't do it. But it can sometimes be a good lesson. That is good advice. I want to point you to resources on our page, wnyc.org slash hold on. If you want to look at where you might find some mental health support if you've been inspired, encouraged that it is possible by listening this hour. This is Hold On. It's a series of live conversations about mental health and getting the help you need as part of May Mental Health Awareness Month. We are having live conversations with you all this month. I'm Anna Sale. I host the podcast Death, Sex and Money from WNYC. And you can again check out those resources at WNYC.org slash hold on. Dr. Callie, What's your hot tip? Where did you find the best therapists you've ever had? Where did you come upon them?
3: I asked um, another doctor.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: I I happen to know other doctors, so I think that's easy for me. But I think one of the callers said they talked to a friend who had a CID. I really think asking people, asking people, um, either friends you know are in therapy, asking your primary care doctor, asking folks in the community. If you don't know anyone in the community, do like. Maybe get on Instagram, do some Googling for people who maybe look like you or have a similar background and then read about them. Um, but I do think it's easiest once you, if you know someone in the community, unfortunately, that seems to be the best way to reach out to them.
0: And I like this homework. You can take it as a, as an opportunity to do some community building by asking that you are looking for help and see what you might find By people who are near you, loved ones, family members, friends, and they might give you just the person who's going to be a successful, share, a a successful therapist. This is Hold On, Let's Keep Talking Together. I'm Anna Sale. Thanks for listening to this first hour of Hold On, our series of live national call-in specials from WNYC and Death, Sex, and Money. Keep listening. There's more to come in this series. Watch your Death, Sex, and Money podcast feed. And you can join us live on Thursday, May 11th and Thursday, May 18th, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be on your local public radio station, if we're on the air where you live. Or you can stream it from anywhere at WNYC.org. And if you go to WNYC.org slash hold on, there's a list of resources for you there. Please share this series with anyone in your life who you think might find it useful and be in touch with any feedback or stories you want to share. Our email is DeathSexMoney at WNYC.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. This series is produced by Zoe Azoulay and Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, along with Megan Ryan and Zach Gutterer-Cohen. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team also helped out Afiello Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn, as well as our intern, Baze Hohen, Matt Mirando, Raymond Chan, Wayne Schulmeister, Rob Christensen, and Aaron Cohen supported us with engineering and technical support in New York, and Jer Wu engineered me in the studios of the UC Berkeley Journalism School. Thanks also to Alicia Allen, Jacqueline Sincotta, Robin Villenkov, Mike Berry, Tara Sonin, and Rachel Lieberman.